Welcome to the second in our faculty-led chapel series on sexuality. I'd like to highlight a couple caveats before I launch my talk. First, my biology training did not focus on the biology of sexuality. I'm not a specialist in this area. I'm also not a theologian, but I'm going to be talking about some theology as well. Rather, I'm a Christian biologist who can speak of sexual differences in light of his faith and academic discipline. The meanderings of my exploration today aren't necessarily perfectly chosen and are far from infallible, especially when I stray into areas outside of biology. So just understand that as we, as we proceed. Be sure, if you have concerns, thoughts, or criticisms about my approach, to let me know. I'd love to engage in conversation in order to learn from you and explore this interesting topic uh, together more fully. Alternatively, if the chapel raises questions in your mind, talk to one another or talk to your professors or to others on campus or people at your church. So please join me in listening to God's word relating to what his creation communicates to us. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands day after day. They pour forth speech night after night. They display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. As a natural scientist, I find it encouraging to be told in scripture that when we study his creation, we'll learn something about God. In a possibly apocryphal story, an atheist biologist, J.B.S. Haldane, was asked by a theologian what he had learned about God through his study of creation. Haldane quipped in, in light of the incredible species diversity among coleopterans, which is a genus of insect that includes beetles, that he had learned that God had, quote, an inordinate fondness for beetles. As Christians observing the living world, we could easily and more seriously extend this line of thinking by adding that nature also reveals that God has a fondness for sex and sexuality. More than 99% of eukaryotic organisms engage in sexual reproduction, and many or most of these exhibit distinct sexes, each contributing uh, distinctive gametes that combine to initiate the development of the next generation of offspring. Sexual, sexual reproduction is mind-boggling in its complexity, and it's outrageously expensive metabolically for creatures that engage in it. Biologists who focus on the pre prevalence of sex and sexuality are puzzled by it. In a recent article entitled The Sex Paradox, in the journal The Scientist, the evolutionary geneticist Anil Angrawal is quoted saying, sexual reproduction permeates biology at every level, and yet it's not intuitively obvious why it should be that way, because the costs are so high. I believe that scripture gives us insight into this sex paradox. Whoops. Um, so, there, so before we dive into the biology of sex, let's first briefly consider some theology surrounding the origin of living forms. In Genesis 1, we see that created living creatures, uh, that God created living creatures such that they would fill the water, seas, and earth through biological reproduction. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great, the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. Continuing in Genesis 1 and 2, additional insight can be found in the account of the creation of human beings. In Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis 2, the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. In the Genesis account, we um, learn two key facts with regard to the sexual embodiment of human beings. First, of all the things God declared good, man being alone was not good. A suitable helper was needed. As Dr. Kevin Eames noted in his Christian Mind lecture earlier this semester, Helper is a translation of the Hebrew word ezer, which is derived from two roots, meaning to rescue and to be strong, not quite in keeping with the traditional understanding of the translation helper, helpmate, or helpmeet. In the book of Psalms, God is described as ezer. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help, easer, and our shield. It seems God saw weakness in man by himself, that could be remedied or rescued by the complementary strengths of a woman, an easer. God connects his declaration of our image-bearing closely with our being created male and female. In my mind, God's constituted humanity male and female because our image-bearing can't be fully expansively realized by one sex or the other. Obviously, by creating humans male and female, God is setting up a mechanism for his future command for humans to be fruitful, to fill, and to um, subdue creation. But in addition to this, I believe there's a good, beautiful, and essential complementarity that God intends in in creating humans male and female, a complementarity that allows us to more fully and deeply exhibit God's image. This complementarity can be seen to show can be seen to show some resemblance to the Trinity, with distinctive persons loving and serving each other in an endless dance of diving under to bring glory to the other, a perichoresis in Greek. I believe that humans are invited into this dance, and that an important facet of the dance for us involves our sexual natures. Thus the fruitfulness that God commands requires relationship and interaction, a flourishing, complementary, loving, reciprocally serving community is at the core of the image of God expressed in unfallen humanity. Man and woman in reciprocally supporting relationship bears the image of God more fully and more completely 
than man alone. I don't think that the fullness of our image bearing is the whole story, though. By creating sexual humans, God provides a relational means to obey his command to fill the earth, much as he did with the animals and plants that were assigned the same filling task. I believe the idea of filling in the creational context includes both multiplication and diversification. Filling the earth with creatures would require both reproduction and and adaptation. Sexual reproduction is an incredibly effective mechanism for producing variation, the working material for biological adaptation. Without biological adaptation, animals and plants would fill the earth in a more limited fashion, constrained by narrow environmental tolerance limits. To give you a small sense of the power of sexual reproduction to produce diversity, please permit me to take a quick diversion. Consider this. The cells in your body contain uh, 46 chromosomes composed of 23 distinct pairs with each pair consisting of a chromosome that you inherited from your mom and from your dad. While each chromosome pair encodes encodes similar information, the mom and dad chromosome in each pair may have many places where the DNA sequence is distinct, producing genetic combinations which contribute to your unique set of physical and functional features. So in the diagram, I think that the uh, female chromosomes are boxed in red and the, and the uh, or I'm sorry, the mom chromosomes are boxed in red and the, gr- and the green are, uh, are the paternal or, or dad chromosomes. So now let's consider what happens next. You meet your soulmate, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You marry and decide to start a family. When your ovaries or testes produce an egg or sperm, the specialized cellular division that produces these cells cuts the chromosome number in half. The sperm and eggs that are produced have a single set of 23 chromosomes with an assortment consisting of varying proportions of your mom's and your dad's chromosomes, overlaid with additional complexity of many chromosomes being hybrid versions of both mom and dad Uh, derived chromosomes, which is a result of chromosomal crossing over events that occur during the special um, cellular division. So the randomness in divvying up the mom and dad chromosomes combined with the slicing and dicing that occurs with crossing over allows gametes to exhibit mind-blowing genetic complexity. Each individual in our happy couple can produce on the order of 50 trillion genetically distinct gametes, and that's a conservative estimate each containing a unique combination of bits from each partner's mom and dad. The theoretical number of possible genetically distinct children derived from this single couple is 50 trillion times 50 trillion or 2.5 octillion distinctive children. (laughs) So needless to say, our couple can plan to have quite a large family without worrying about having the same one twice, right? So sexual reproduction is astoundingly good at producing genetic diversity. Getting back to God's command for animals and plants to fill the earth, sexual reproduction allows for offspring to be produced that have unique combinations of genetically determined traits that may allow certain individuals to survive and fill environments that their parents couldn't. God's call went out, diversify, fill, and God's ordained mechanism, sexual reproduction, was up to the task. Physical adaptations of humans to their environments, 
like darker skin pigmentation for equatorial sun protection, subcutaneous fat deposits in Inuit Alaskans for thermal insulation, could also be considered as part of this pattern of diversification through sexual reproduction. For humans, the task of filling takes on added dimensions. For humans, creational filling not only involves physical occupation of more territory by human populations, but also involves taking dominion over creation as God's appointed vice-regents and to develop creation's latent potentials. This is oftentimes referred to as the cultural mandate. One could argue that the, the genetic diversification of humans was God's gift to humanity to allow people with diverse sets of gifts to take dominion and cultivate the latent potentials of creation. The cultural mandate requires diverse people with diverse gifts. With sexual reproduction, God provides a way to fill the earth with diverse people. So sexual reproduction is a gift of God provided for his living creation to fulfill his command to fill and for mankind to specifically to subdue, cultivate, and develop. And I've argued that sexual distinctions between male and female exhibit a complementarity that allows humans to more fully and robustly reflect God's image. My guess is that my suggestion so far may not, be generating, may not be generating much consternation or controversy. What does provoke controversy is a discussion of what exactly is the extent and nature of the differences between men and women, and to what extent these differences are biologically determined. Let's start with the easy part of the discussion. Men and women do exhibit physical differences that are biologically programmed. Let's briefly review how some of these biological programs play out under normal circumstances. I'll warn you, we're going to get a little technical here. So your, your life started out with a cellular diffusion between a sperm cell from your dad and an egg cell from your mom. Your mom's egg contained one X chromosome along with a single copy of every other chromosome type. Your dad's sperm contained cells that were equally divided between sperm cells that contained an X chromosome and sperm cells that contained a Y chromosome. The fusion of an X chromosome containing sperm with an X chromosome containing egg produces an XX zygote, under, which under normal circumstances will develop as a female. Alternatively, if a sperm with a Y chromosome fuses with an X chromosome containing egg, an XY zygote is formed, which under normal circumstances will develop as a male. At the moment of conception, males and females are distinguished by their chromosomal composition. But why does this chromosomal composition or distinction make a difference in what happens next? It turns out that in humans, the crucial determinant is the presence or absence of a Y chromosome, not the number of X chromosomes. Abnormal chromosomal conditions like Turner's syndrome, where there's only one X chromosome present, develop as females, whereas conditions like Klinefelter's syndrome, a condition where there's two X chromosomes and a Y, developed as males. The Y chromosome is biologically in the driver's seat in terms of sexual determination in humans. The Y chromosome can play this determinative role by virtue of a single gene found encoded along its length. The gene called SRY for sex determination region Y encodes a protein that in males kicks off a cascade of events that ultimately results in the development of male genital structures during embryonic development. 
The SRY gene acts in early embryonic development in humans. Um, the, the SRY gene acts early in the embryonic development in humans. In the sixth week of development, human embryos have established a basic body pattern, and chromosomally male and female embryos have identical indeterminate gonads that are neither testes nor ovaries. In males, it's at this stage that the SRY gene comes into play. In, male, in, in a male, the SRY gene switches on at this stage, and the SRY protein that's produced impacts how the indeterminate gonadal tissue develops into mature gonads, the testis. Females lacking a Y chromosome and the SRY gene don't switch on this signal, so the indeterminate gonads mature as, instead as ovaries. The significance of this embryonic developmental switch is huge. In males, the newly formed testes begin to produce a hormone, testosterone, and this hormone circulating through the embryo's body impacts the development of indeterminate genital-associated structures, causing the development of male reproductive structures, the penis, the scrotum, and the um, male-specific internal ducts that will ultimately conduct sperm to the outside of the body during sexual activity in adulthood. In females, the absence of SRY and the absence of testes and testosterone fosters female genital structure development. The idea of distinctions between sexes that extend beyond genital structures is referred to in biology as sexual dimorphism. Sexually dimorphic species are those in which male and female individuals exhibit distinctions in form, function, or behavior. And looking out into the biological realm, we find that nature is replete with sexual dimorphism. You can see some examples here, the elephant seal, uh, the large male, small female, the uh, golden pheasant with uh, vastly different coloration patterns in this in interesting example of the anglerfish uh, where the male is basically a parasitic little creature that attaches to the side of the female, <laughs> taking nutrition from her while he provides her with sperm. That's the uh, role of the male in the anglerfish. So sexual dimorphism is evident in both physical form and behavior, as is evident in these insect and bird example movies. The first video that I'm going to show you a real quick clip of is of a species of Australian jumping spider where males have a sexual dimorphism where they have special paddles on their legs that they wave around to let the female know that I'm a male of your species, don't eat me. And then the second video is, a, is of the greater superb bird of paradise which exhibits incredible physical dimorphism along with an intricate set of mating behaviors, wait and be stunned by the turnaround moment in the, uh, in the uh, um, Bird of Paradise movie. So let's see if I can get this started here. Find my place. Okay, so here is the female Australian, there's the male's specialized. <laughs> He's under the leaf, signaling. She's taking notice. <laughs> there he is. Soon you'll see him. Oh, now he comes around the other. Now you can see his specialized legs that he uses as the flag. And so that's about it for that one. Okay, so now let's take a look 
at the bird of paradise. So you'll start by seeing <clears throat> the male has specialized feathers around his neck, approaching the female, doing his little dance. <laughs> and now watch for the turnaround moment here. All right. I believe she was impressed. All right. So, though not as quite as prominent, there's a significant physical dimorphism between males and females. Body size, body fat percentage and distribution, facial and hip bone structure, waist to hip ratio, muscularity, strength, facial and body hair distribution and presence, breast development to, breast development to main, name just a few dimorphic features. Some of these physical traits are expressed as a distribution in, in each sex, with some of these features exhibiting significant overlap. So male and females exhibit group differences in body fat percentages, although the curves show significant overlap, as you can see here. Measures of upper body and grip strength are more strongly sexually dimorphic in human beings with very little overlap, even when comparing elite female athletes to male, the male general population. A graph showing the distinction between male and female grip strength as a function of age is shown here. Let me show you, guide you through this a little bit. So what you see here is in blue, um, at different ages, the x-axis is age, the y-axis is force, and so all the little blue dots are, are males. And uh, you can see that the distribution of grip strength is higher than the green dots, the females, um, with relatively little overlap over all ages. And you can see, though, that there is some overlap. You can find some green in the, in the blue zone and some blue in the green zone. So there is overlap even in this highly sexually dimorphic characteristic. So please note that even with this relatively extreme dimorphic characteristic, the overlap in the distributions means that one can't assume that any randomly encountered female is going to have a grip strength less than that of a randomly chosen male. These physical differences are largely attributable to the surge in testosterone that accompanies puberty in males, but may also be a function of more subtle physiological differences that may be established by earlier hormonal surges in the embryonic and early postnatal periods. So let's stop for a moment and, and, and go back to our consideration of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were designed with distinct and complementary genital structures and accompanying organ systems, and I think we can presume distinctive body forms and physiological features. But do these differences capture the complementarity that Genesis invokes with its language describing women as easer? completing the image of God as expressed in humanity? Is creational masculinity and femininity purely a function of bodily form and sexual function? Or might masculinity and femininity be a function of a richer and broader constellation of trait distributions, physical, behavioral, social, cognitive, emotional, or even spiritual? So what do you suppose Adam and Eve were like in terms of non-physical distinctions? Let's engage in some pure speculation. I know there can be all sorts of criticisms in my approach here, but humor me. Let's just uh, move forward. Imagine a world where Adam and Eve didn't fall into temptation, into the temptation of the serpent. 
fulfilling God's command to fill, subdue, take dominion, Adam and Eve have male and female children who are not identical but have mixes of physical, behavioral, and all the other types of characteristics and gifts which allow them to cultivate the latent potentials of creation. Now let's imagine that we could send this unfallen population of men and women an online survey. Assessing our conceptions of masculine and feminine, physical, behavioral, social, emotional, and spiritual characteristics, and somehow assembling a composite score. Would we expect to see extreme sexual dimorphism, non-overlapping distributions shown here in scenario one? Or would we see no sexual dimorphism with distributions precisely coincident outside of baseline kind of sexual organ distinctions. Um, and so that's shown here in scenario two. Or would we expect, as we see in kind of current post-fall humanity, a shifted, non-coincident, but overlapping distribution in these types of, of traits? Scenario three. I'm not completely sure what I would expect. I think given the sense of complementarity that I see between the sexes in Genesis, there might be broad group differences in the composite score for this constellation of characteristics. I have no idea the, what the degree of the overlap would be, but have my doubts that the curves would be perfectly coincident. Regardless, let's consider how the fall might have distorted this unfallen creational pattern. In a fallen creation, we're buffeted on all sides by the pandemic influences of the fall that move us from the place where God desires or intended us to be as men and women. Sometimes the sins of others, the strictures of an upbringing based on false assumptions about gender roles, sexual abuse, the constant mantra of a culture that promotes warped attitudes towards sexuality and gender, and warped modes of expressing our sexual impulses and desires, gender-based power plays and sinful subjugation. Perhaps our, seg our, our sexuality becomes bent not by the battering effects of the sin of others outside us, or our cultural environment, but from within, through the buffeting winds of our own unsanctified, rebellious hearts. The flesh constantly suggests to us expressions of sexuality that are contrary to God's intent. If we think back on, a, on, the, on our hypothetical distribution of traits, maybe we would expect the effects of the fall to blur the distinction if the pre-fall distribution was non-overlapping, as shown here for uh, scenario one, so before and after. Or if the pre-fall condition were precisely coincident, could it be that the sinful social construction of sexual and gender roles would create a false and warped definition, um, or would create false and warped definitions and distinctions as shown here in scenario two, before and after the fall. Or if the pre-fall condition were non-coincident and overlapping, my preferred conception, perhaps the area of over overlap could be expected to either widen or narrow. Or perhaps no change in the overall distribution would be discernible, but individuals within the population might find themselves buffeted by external or internal sin to a place that wasn't intended for them. Some of you at this point may be wondering what happened to our discussion of the biology of sexuality. How are the fall biology and sexuality related? If you're not, I've not forgotten. So a significant body of research suggests that biologically determined sexual dimorphism in humans is not restricted solely to physical features, but may extend to baseline 
behavioral, social, and personality traits. Much of this research relates to genetic or congenital disorders that disrupt the gender-specific balance of sex hormones during embryonic and fetal development or interfere with the ability of the body to detect and respond to sex hormones. Disorders in our biological development caused by disruptions of the normal pattern of testosterone production, shown in the graph behind me, during fetal and postnatal periods seems to be able to strongly impact gender certain gender-associated behaviors, and even um, there's some studies that suggest sexual orientation. So human girls may have a heightened testosterone uh, level during late gestation due to a condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or due to exposure to androgenic drugs that their mother, mothers may have taken during gestation. Girls with such conditions exhibit significantly increased male typical play behavior, which includes rough and tumble play, preference for hard wheeled toys over plush toys, a significantly reduced chance of being sexually, uh, ex ex sexually exclusively heterosexual, and a significantly increased chance of expressing male gender identity, which would be known as gender dysphoria. It's important to note that only about 70% of these women are exclusively I'm sorry, it's important to note that about 70% of these women are sexually are exclusively heterosexual. So I should emphasize that other factors beyond biology likely play big roles in the determination of sexual orientation. Chromosomal XY males may also be impacted by an activated uh, chromosomal XY males may be impacted by an activating mutation in a gene that encodes a cell receptor that allows the body to respond to testosterone. This disorder is called complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, or CAIS. Absent the ability to detect testosterone released by the embryonic testes, the external genitals in these individuals, even though there's a testis, develop along the female pathway, and they're, extremely and they're externally indistinguishable from girls at birth. These individuals exhibit female typical play behavior and exhibit an almost exclusive sexual orientation toward men, actually in a proportion even greater than, that's than what is found in normal non-CAIS women. Changes of this type may not always be genetic. Uh, changes of this type may not always be genetic because we know that BPA in plastic products can act to suppress testosterone effects and may cause uh, changes in behavioral patterns in male embryos. All right, I'm going to skip over one slide for the sake of time. My sharing this information with you is not an attempt to convince you of hardened biological determinism or essentialism. Human behavior is strongly influenced by the environment, social interactions, and culture. What I'm saying is that where we sit in the spectrum of our conceptions of ma masculine and feminine is complex. Perhaps biology lays a creationally ordained foundation, which then may be exa exaggerated or minimized, or even upended by social or cultural structures, by the sin of others or the, by the sin in our own hearts. My view is that we're neither biologically hardwired nor blank slates with regard to femininity and masculinity. Our call is to live faithfully in the place where we find ourselves, seeking holiness and sanctification in the fallen creation where even our physical frame can pose special challenges and sinful temptations, 
Evangelicals are somewhat conflicted regarding biology and sexuality. A biological basis to sexual difference can be viewed as God's providential normative baseline for flourishing. In this view, systematic differences between the sexes can be attributed to God's hardwired complementary design. From this perspective, attempts to explain away sexual differences on the basis of social construction seem like straining against God's good design due to sinful desires to be rid of God's constraining ordinance. In the case of non-normative sexual characteristics, however, evangelicals are averse to attributing much to biology. Wouldn't finding a biological basis for, say, homosexuality or transgenderism absolve any moral responsibility for biblically, biblically prohibited behaviors? A biological basis for such non-normative patterns would seem to provide an easy excuse. God made me this way, so who are you to judge? I think the best way forward is for us to seek to cultivate both empathy and holiness. Sexuality or sexual orientation and aspects, of, and aspects of what we define as femininity and masculinity may indeed have distinct biological origins. So empathy is a good posture to, in the face of those who struggle. But God also commands us to live holy lives in the midst of besetting fallenness and provides the Holy Spirit that allows us to have victory over sin even when the origin of temptation is deeply rooted. Bottom line, pray for, care for, and love each other. Thank you for coming and listening.